Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Military Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Earverm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today we continue with our study of the Napoleonic Maxims. But before we get started on that, just a, a short complaint, I suppose, on the part of this rugged old campaigner. Um, you know, as, as you guys know, I live in Montana, and we experience all sorts of severe weather here. And uh, it is not uncommon for us in the late summer, particularly, to get some fairly nasty fires that inundate the air with, with smoke and make it difficult to breathe and to see and uh, generally just sort of make the air unhealthy. And we started early this year. Uh, normally I'm a fan of Canadian imports, but they can keep this because all this smoke is coming down out of Canada. And it is unfortunate because, of course, it interferes with a lot of wargaming activities, as it would have back in the way when, too. I, I know that, uh, you know, climate cycles fluctuate and change from time to time, and things come and go in terms of normalcy, but I cannot imagine trying to campaign in this. You know, having to choke every time you breathe, having everything you own reek of smoke, the... Yeah, I, I just can't imagine. I, like again, we can we have our nice, our nice comfy homes, with our filtration systems, that we can retreat to, when we need to. And uh, you know, way back in the way when they couldn't have done that, you know, they'd have been stuck out in it. So I, I often think about that. We went up uh, just the other day to visit the Bison Range, which is uh, something here in Western Montana, just gorgeous uh, natural preserve, where they have you know bison kind of in their natural habitat and there's all sorts of critters out there there's you know hawks and uh deer different sorts of deer you've got the dang dole uh there's wolves and bears on the property not very commonly seen because you know this isn't a, a theme park or a zoo it's a preserve you know it's kind of like jurassic park you go out there and you're not guaranteed to see a t-rex and I suppose in this particular place you probably wouldn't want to because the fences were wholly incomplete I mean it was right there you can you can sit there and reach out and touch with the bison right there, um, but the cool thing about going up there is, of course, they've uh, the tribes have taken over the land again, and the visitor center has been turned into a small museum, as well, a museum of the tribes that lived in this area, particularly the Salish Kootenai, and one of the things that they used to do uh, when when you know they owned this particular <laughs> area was to prescribe burns. It was it was a part of their religious, spiritual practice to do prescribed burns in various areas to keep uh, nature from becoming overgrown. 
and to keep everything healthy. And of course, when, when we moved in and suddenly decided fire bad, it built up all this undergrowth, and, and now a good portion of what we're having to deal with is because of that. And so, while it doesn't necessarily have to do directly with war gaming, it's interesting about how these, these extracurricular activities, if you will, contribute heavily to the, the execution of war. You know, if the air was clearer, easier to campaign, easier to hunt, less health issues, you know, it's a good way to go, as opposed to having to fight through smog and, and choking smoke. So it's just interesting. It's interesting to think about how our actions as a species influence the day-to-day -day activities in, in some other sorts of actions. You know, how our, how our management of the, the local world influences campaigns. You know, most of Europe... Most of England used to be covered in vast, thick forest. And most of it has been cut away by industry, by years of indiscriminate logging. You know, and of course, we're talking about Middle Ages, Renaissance, that sort of thing. But, you know, there was a completely different climate at that point. They would have had to deal with forest fires as well. As, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that go into it. So, it's just something that was on my mind today. But, uh, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think that's about it. So let's move on, you and I, and we'll start talking about some more of these Napoleonic maxims. Picking right up where we left off, let's look at number 64. Nothing is more important in war than unity in command. When, therefore, you are carrying on hostilities against a single power only, you should have but one acting army on one line led by one commander. Napoleon's tactics absolutely support what he's talking about right here, which is, you know, the overwhelming force in one given area. This same idea would be applied later and, and evolved into what would be called blitzkrieg tactics that were adopted during World War II and also used by other nations in other places. Look at the uh, American invasion of Kuwait and Iraq, or uh, of Iraq across that line, and just like the blitzkrieg technique, which is the overwhelming uh, aerial bombardment with fast-moving tanks, boom, it's extremely effective. But that particular strategy hadn't been adopted at this time. And so even though we would do it in a far more diverse sort of way, we also do have one person who's in command of the overall army and kind of calling the shots there. And this is important because when, when it comes to the army, when it comes to the field of battle, the one person making sure that things are happening in, it also means that they're going to happen in good time and with consistency. You know, if you've got a whole group of people that need to debate, and they need to come up with a concise answer together, but everybody's got their own opinion on how to do things, it slows things up. It gums up the works. And it makes it impossible to get anything done in a real amount of time. Certainly listen to advisors. Certainly listen to other people who you know may know a particular topic better. But don't... Uh, we, we, we should not um, let it divide. I mean, there are many units who don't necessarily have a designated unit leader. But then they, when they're on the field, they designate a person as a, okay, this person is in charge. You know, you can have all the loosey-goosiness off the field in peacetime as you want, but when we're involved in an active campaign, one person needs to be able to call the shots because then things get done. And in there, you know, hopefully good things are getting, hopefully your commander 
ourselves, hopefully, as a uh, competent <laughs> commander and, and calling good shots. But somebody has to, nonetheless. I mean, you can rotate through multiple commanders. You know, the, um, the Federal Army during the American Civil War had several different generals throughout the course of the war because, you know, each one would, would bumble in some way or, you know, kind of push back against Washington and, you know, Lincoln would put another person in that position. Now, I mean, in many of those cases, it was absolutely warranted. And the final person that they settled on was Grant, who adopted the highly effective just uh, attrition and sending Sherman against the infrastructure and the base to the total war sort of setting. That was kind of the last thing, but until that point, there had been, you know, relatively successful slash unsuccessful slash Burnside generals throughout the way who weren't doing great. But each of those people, even then, were given the reign to make those decisions because they had to, because that's just the way that war works. And so it's the way that we, even emulating war throughout our, our war games, also need it to work. One, one leader, one brain at the center at least at the time of action, we can talk about changing them out next time, you know. 65. Oh, moving into the same topic. The effects of discussions, making a show of talent, and calling councils of war will be what the effect of these things has been in every age. They will end in the adoption of the most pusillanimous, or, if the expression be preferred, the most prudent measures, which in war are almost uniformly the worst that can be adopted. True wisdom, so far as a general is concerned, consists in energetic determination. Compromise isn't good when it, when it comes to necessarily a, to, a, to a military campaign. Compromise is good in a marriage, in a friendship, in a workplace, but when we're dealing with decisions that need to be made on the battlefield... Compromise ends up putting us into a situation that, like it says, is either too aggressive for the overall plan to work or too prudent. It, is, it holds back far too much. But in any case, because of the need for consensus, often what is adopted is the worst plan because it doesn't follow one clear, concise vision. And again, like I said for the last section, it is okay for us to listen to other people who may have feedback. It is okay for us to have advisors or, or you know, folks that we trust who can help us you know, think about this in, in a broader sense. But at the end of the day, the decision needs to be left to that one person. A whole council is not going to make the right decision as a general rule. Like he said, it's almost uniformly the worst that can be adopted. And he's right. Now, this is also a megalomaniac who is bent on making himself emperor. And some of the stuff that we'll see, especially in this uh, particular episode... You can tell that it's like, hmm, somebody's rather full of himself, aren't we? So this is one of those cases where I do agree with him slightly, but I also think that his ego is starting to show through here. But uh, yeah, on to 66. There are certain things in war of which the commander alone comprehends the importance. Nothing but his superior firmness and ability to can subdue and surmount all difficulties. Yeah, what did I say? Here goes that famous Napoleonic ego. And I mean, what he says is still, I mean, it's still useful. You know, this idea of nobody sees it quite the same way. Nobody saw the Civil War in the same way that Grant did. Nobody saw the Napoleonic Wars in the way that Napoleon did, or the, like the Silencian War like Frederick did. 
any of the Roman wars with any of the Roman generals that presided over them. You know, each of those commanders had a unique perspective because they had the whole picture. You know, they, they were listening to the logistics folks, to the intelligence folks, to the, to the military folks on the ground. All that information coming in at all times being processed by that one person. And that gives them a perspective that nobody else really understands. Not, not it's in, in, in its entirety. It's kind of like when we're in charge of anything. You know, people can look at it, they can try to understand what it's like, but until you take the reins of something, until you take the mantle of something, you don't quite know what the importance is. Like, you want, you want a trip. Try running a realm. You would not believe the amount of stuff that a person who is running a realm has to deal with that nobody else really re recognizes or realizes is there. There's a whole lot of BS. Same thing with being a unit leader. Any of these positions of leadership... Any, any place where you have access to more information than your average Joe, your decisions suddenly become more important because they're influenced by more important and encompassing things. And so he's saying that you need to be firm. We need to be driven and we need to have our clear mind and, and have the ability, of course, to overcome these things and not necessarily rely on other people's ability to understand us. As in, like, not, I mean, they need to be able to understand our orders. That's not what I mean. But relying on other people to understand the position that we're in. You know, nobody quite can. Just like in real life. You know, nobody really understands what it feels like to be you. You know, whoever you are with, with your unique set of skills and flaws and bonuses. Like, nobody quite knows what it's like to be you. Well, so much more when it involves something like, a military command where it's far more important, far more dangerous and far more stressful when it comes to how things are playing out. You know, there's regular life and then there's, oh yeah, people are going to live and die on my command. Those are unique pressures, unique challenges. And so again, it is, it is best to trust in ourselves and not necessarily rely on the fact that other people may or may not be sympathetic to us. Number 67. To authorize generals and officers to lay down their arms by virtue of a special capitulation under any other circumstance than when they would constitute the garrison of a fortified place would unquestionably be attended with dangerous consequences. To open this door to cowards, to men in wanting and energy, or even to misguided brave men, is to destroy the military spirit of a nation. An extraordinary situation requires an extraordinary resolution. The more obstinate the resistance of an armed body, the more chances it will have of being succored or of forcing a passage. How, much, how many things of apparent impossibility have nevertheless been performed by resolute men who had no alternative but death? This brings to mind one of the things that we discussed in our very first season, which was when Sun Tzu was talking about when you have your opponent encircled, making sure that there's a gap, making sure that there's some sort of way that they can think they might be able to get out. Because people who think I am going to die, or people who think, you know, this is it, are going to fight far fiercer than somebody who has hope. Because the only hope for the, for the, other, for the other person is to fight as hard as one possibly can. And this has turned battles all throughout history. You know, this, this panic, this desperation that comes with being trapped. And so, but to say otherwise, to say to any officer, to say to any commander who may, as he said, uh, be a coward, 
or be lacking in energy or be misguidedly brave that, oh yeah, there's a series of circumstances, we're going to list them right here, where it's okay to give in, where it's okay to run up the white flag. That's dangerous. Like he says, that is dangerous because that says, hey, by the way, there's, there is an excuse for treason. There is an excuse for, you know, sacrificing the army for anything other than a military action. That's, that opens a door, as he says, to other things. Now, in this particular case, you know, I can't really see a comparison for what we do. There's going to be several of these that are kind of like this, addressing this issue. But, you know, the idea for us is also to say that there is no real excuse for throwing in the towel. That's one of the ways that I would look at this is when I'm fighting either on the tabletop or in the field, there is no excuse for me to quit that field other than uh, being defeated, being outright defeated, being deprived of my ability to continue on the military action. So, you know, this is, this is so much more uh, important when we're dealing with real combat. But, you know, to, to say, okay, I'm done with any given... Like, I, there have been so many games, so many matches that have flipped around simply because I kept trying, because I was not willing to just say, okay, I'm defeated, before I had actually received a real defeat. And so Napoleon and I are very much of the same mind on this, which is to say that one must be resolute and not necessarily give yourself a situation where you're like, okay, it's okay if I surrender in this particular situation. Well, then, you know, cowards, people lacking in energy, and misguidedly brave people will maybe even seek out those situations to justify exactly what we were talking about. And so saying that, you know, that's not allowed, you know, that makes it, makes it possible to create those excuses in the future. Number 68, no sovereign, no people, no general can be secure if officers are permitted to capitulate on the field and lay down their arms by virtue of an agreement favorable to themselves and to the troops under their command, but opposed to the interests to the remainder of the army, to withdraw from peril themselves and thus render the position of their comrades more dangerous is manifestly, manifestly an act of baseness. Such conduct ought to be prescribed, pronounced infamous, and punishable with death. The generals, officers, and soldiers who, in a battle, have saved their lives by capitulating, ought to be decimated. He who commands the arms to be surrendered and those who obey him are alike traitors and deserve capital punishment. Nothing short of death will stop somebody from trying to avoid death. I mean, that's, that, that just kind of, I think, goes without saying. Uh, anything, you know, jail time? It's like, okay, well, getting shot or jail time... For a lot of people, that's a pretty much a no-brainer. Especially for somebody who's been conscripted, conscripted, that is absolutely a no-brainer. But, you know, saying, no, that's a, that's a capital offense, you will be killed for it, it definitely changes some minds. And in this particular case, it's talking about, you know, somebody selling out their, their, their unit or selling out their army for their own personal benefit. Not cool. And, you know, treasonous by his own accounts. Yeah, I would think if somebody switched sides in the middle of a fight, like switched units, and was like, okay, I don't want to fight for this unit anymore, I'm going to go fight for this unit, that would be pretty pretty devastating to the social connections there. I'm, I'm not sure if they would keep a whole lot of friends in their previous unit if they just quit on the field and went and joined another one right then and there. That's the only parallel I can think of, 
and that would be pretty damning to one's social standing. So, uh, but not quite the same. We're not we're not having uh, public executions at our events, or if we are, the cops need to be called. Number sixty-nine. There is but one honorable way of being made a prisoner of war, and that is by being taken separately and when you can no longer make use of your arms. Then there are no conditions, for there can be none, consistently with, consistent with honor, but you are compelled to surrender by absolute necessity. If you can't fight anymore, you can't fight anymore. And that has to be after you know, exhausting every resource, after putting everything forward short of just suicidal uh, madness. You know, one must be rendered unable to continue the fight for it to even be remotely honorable to, to stop fighting. And again, this is something that I abide by and, and many of the people I know abide by is this idea of it's not over till it's over. And it's not until, you know, I've been defeated on the field or have been put into a situation that is absolutely hopeless, like that nothing is going to end up happening to benefit me, <laughs> where, where death is inevitable. Like I have absolutely thrown in the towel in like round three of a match. If my army or if my opponent has the majority of their army on the board, and I've got two models left because of a particularly nasty shooting phase. Yeah, that absolutely happened. And they're already ahead in points. Uh, it's not happening. That is just simply not happening. I'm sorry, it doesn't. I mean, all the dice rolls in the world would have to go wrong on their part for me to have won that particular match. Now, you know, I, there's been other matches where, again, I've kept going because I was like, you know, it, it looks like it might be getting hopeless, but let's see what happens. And I've managed to turn it around because of the attitude. But again, there are, there are some conditions where it's like, okay, we are literally just making sure that we die if we continue fighting in this particular situation. So there's a difference between cowardice, between giving ourselves an easy way out and admitting when something is an absolutely hopeless situation. You know, if I've got a double envelopment going on around me and it's just me against, you know, 10 EBF. No, yeah, no, I'm going to save my energy for something that I can possibly win because that is not a fight that I can possibly win. It's something to be considered. Remember Thomas Aquinas' just war theory. A war has to be winnable. And so if it's not in any way winnable, well, then it's, it's not just to continue telling our troops to, to attack easy enough. This is why they have courts martial, by the way, and they don't have like hard set rules about, okay, this is when it's called desertion or treason as opposed to this situation, because every situation is going to be individual and it has to come down to, okay, this situation was desperate enough that it, you know, there was no other way around it. And that's what a courts martial is about. Typically in, in this, for this particular topic it is to determine whether or not it was worth it, you know, or if something else could have been done. Moving on to number 70. The conduct of a general in a conquered country encompassed, is encompassed with difficulties. If he is severe, he exasperates and increases the numbers of his enemies. If he is mild, he inspires hope, which, since they cannot be realized, cause the abuse and vexations unavoidably incident to war only to stand out in bolder relief. A conqueror should know how to employ, by turns, severity, justice, and leniency in supporting or preventing disturbances. There is no hard and set manual for being able to successfully occupy another country. A lot of different folks have tried it. A lot of different folks have failed. And 
you know, from what he's saying, it needs to be something that is relatively flexible. It cannot just be, I am going to be severe all the time, because then again, it breeds resentment. It breeds the ability to incite more uh, violence. You know, imagine the occupation that America recently had in Afghanistan. You know, it was very severe in a lot of cases. And, and when you level an entire town to get one or two insurgents who might not actually be there, but you've just, you know, leveled an entire town, that breeds a little bit of resentment. You know, as we had talked about during the Abu Bakr Naji book, the practice of Hamas firing from residential neighborhoods and provoking a response from Israel that is damaging to those neighborhoods is a recruitment technique. Full stop. That's, that's exactly what it is, is a recruitment technique. So we want to avoid that. We want to avoid a situation where our enemies can use us as a weapon against ourselves, I guess. And of course, the, the more soft we are, the more that they think that they can redress things, the more they can be like, oh, well, uh, you know, this was pretty bad. Like, and then, you know, there's also the wiggle room that, that accomplishes that, like he says, the hope, uh, the hope of, of dislodging a person. So there needs to be just enough pressure to be like, okay, we're here and we own this. And there has to be just enough, uh, you know, looseness to not make people feel choked. And there is no moral reason to colonize. I mean, there really isn't. There's no reason to go into somebody else's house and tell them how they're supposed to live their lives or to take their resources and leave nothing for them. You know, you know colonization on, on any level or, you know, the conquering of a nation of, of any sort and saying, okay, bow before us. It's pretty much always immoral. Again, wars need to be defensive in nature to be any sort of moral. And so what he's already talking about, this conquering, you know, you've already stepped into an immoral zone and that makes it really difficult to handle and do in a stable sort of way. So there, there is no hard and fast rule for this. I mean, even if you read, um, you know, manuals from the U S military, most of which read like radio instructions for warfare, you know, there's even there, there's a lot of variance when they're talking about actually dealing with occupied populations. And there's a whole lot of, hey, you just got to know what you're doing. You got to make sure, you got to trust that you're making the right decisions. But yeah, so this isn't going to show up in wargaming too terribly much, I don't think. But just in, in terms of a, I don't know, a real world analysis of that one. But let's move on to 71. Nothing can excuse a general who avails himself of the knowledge he has acquired in the service of his country to give up its bulwarks to a foreign nation. That is a crime abhorrent to the principles of religion, morality, and honor. Dishonor on you, dishonor on your family, dishonor on your cow. A general has a responsibility to defend their nation against all things, not to open the doors to an opponent. And to do so, I mean, this kind of goes without saying, but a general's loyalty should be the highest of anybody. A general should have the most vested interest in any sort of combat. We our loyalty to our own combat, our loyalty to our chain of command must be more important than anything else. Otherwise, we've already failed. And by actually giving up our country or giving up what we have to somebody else, uh, yeah, that's treason. That operates against the, the, the whole reason an army exists. The whole reason war is done is as an extension of policy. If your policy suddenly turns and works against you, that... Napoleon sometimes says things that I feel like don't need to be said, 
But then when you actually start talking about it, you're like, okay, yeah, no, that's, that is really important, even though it is pretty simple to understand. 72. A general in chief cannot exonerate himself from responsibility for his faults by pleading an order from his sovereign or the minister when the individual from whom it proceeds is at a distance from the field of operations and but partially, or not at all, acquainted with the actual conditions of things. Hence it follows that every general-in-chief who undertakes to execute a plan which he knows to be bad is culpable. He should communicate his reasons, insist on a change of plan, and finally resign his commission rather than become the instrument of his army's ruin. Every general-in-chief who, in consequence of orders from his superiors, gives battle with the certainty of defeat is equally culpable. In the latter case, he should refuse to obey. For an order requires passive obedience only when it is issued by a superior who is present at the seat of war. As a superior then is familiar with the state of affairs, he can listen to objections and make the necessary explanations to the officer who it is to execute the command. But suppose a general-in-chief were to receive from his sovereign an order to give battle with the injunction to yield the victory to his adversary and permit himself to be beaten. Would he be bound to obey? No. If the general comprehended the utility of so strange an order, he ought to execute it. But if not, he should refuse to obey. Lengthy and long and uncharacteristic of Napoleon, except when he was talking about siege tactics. But let's, let's take a look at this one. The first bit of it is fairly plainly saying there is no excuse. Once an order is issued, once the, the chain of command has started a rolling... There is no excuse that a commander can make to excuse what happened. I mean, yeah, so pardon my simplistic <laughs> uh, choice of words there, but yeah, there, there is nobody higher. You know, if they try to say, oh, it was, it was the president who did it. Well, the president is away. The president is hundreds of miles away. The president didn't do anything because we, ourselves, who are on the ground, you know, did something. And so even, you know, if we're on the field of battle or if we're commanding our army on a tabletop, the buck stops here. We're the ones who are responsible for what we do. We're responsible for the outcome and the consequences of what we do. And so because we bear that responsibility, we have the, the end say in what happens. Not somebody who's hundreds of miles away. It is up to us to protect our army in whatever way we need to. You know, if, if that should be a matter of disobeying an order, because we say, okay, no, this, this action that you're commanding of me is done because you don't know what you're talking about. And you're looking at the, the army or the, the battle from a map, you know, hundreds of miles away and giving these orders and not seeing the conditions on the ground, not, not knowing what a person that I can't remember who it was. I think it was, you know what? I think it was several people who have said, keep the uh, political government, keep the civilian government out of military activities. I mean, any, any sort of democracy or representative government, there always is going to be civilian oversight. Like, that's just going to be the way of it. But in terms of overseeing and commanding the actual war effort, you know, the president can, in American democracy or American republic, the president can make directives. The president can say, this is what I want. This is what I want to see. But in terms of actually commanding the field of battle, that is for the joint chiefs of staff to look at. And for the, you know, the general of the army or the, or the, uh, admiral of the Navy or whoever else is in charge 
of their particular branch. Those are the people that actually need to make those calls and then on down the line as well. And so, and, but if that superior is nearby, like he was saying, if, if you know, we're sitting there and like our civilian administration is right there with us, seeing the same things we are, experiencing the same perspective in warfare that we are, well, then their commands are far more useful and should be actually obeyed. Um, but a good example, and I think I brought this one up before, but a good example of somebody needing to get the heck out of the way was in World War II. And you have Hitler, because of his own ego, decided that he wanted to become more personally involved in the war effort and calling some of the shots. We had Gaudrain, who was brilliant and had kind of developed the Blitzkrieg tactic and knew how to use his army in, in the ways that were important and knew how to manipulate different strategic objectives to work toward a victory. He had a plan on the Eastern Front. And Hitler said, nope, we're going to do it this way. And we're going to split the army. We're going to do like these ones going down here and these guys going up here and this push going straight for, um, I, I know I'm, these ones going down toward the Balkans, these ones going up toward the coast and, and more St. Petersburg area. And this one pushing towards Moscow. And Gauderain was like, this is a terrible idea. And Hitler said, well, that's how it's going to be. And so that's how it was. And the Eastern Front was an absolute bloodbath that ended in catastrophic losses for both sides, but a defeat ultimately for the Germans, for the Nazis who were in the area. And a big uh, reason for this is because they were taking the orders of a civilian over the orders of a commander. Even though Hitler had served in the military in World War I, he had not been any sort of commander. He was not a major, colonel, or a general. He was, you know, down in the pits, down fighting like most of the soldiers were, being exposed to the gas like a lot of the soldiers were. So yeah, him getting involved there, stupid. Egodistal and stupid. So yeah, that's that's kind of the long and the short of it. The buck stops there. Uh, the general really has nobody else to blame it on. Even if their commander-in-chief is saying, okay, I want it done this way, they can say, uh-huh, cool, and then do it the way that they know will work. Because victory is the ultimate thing. And even if that means disobeying an order, a direct order, and again, of course Napoleon would say this. Of course, Napoleon would say, it doesn't matter what the civilians say. It matters what a general says. So yeah, you government stay out of, stay out of my military. You know, this is obviously written from a commander's point of view. And, and all of them were like, you, you look at all these generals and all of them were military commanders. They were all directly involved in the military. And so of course, these guys are going to say, Hey, civilians just stay away because of their experience with civilians getting involved in that kind of, in, in that kind of activity. And I think that's where we're going to stop today. You know, I, I, uh, we're getting towards, towards the end of this particular thing. We're going to be heading back towards Klauswitz before too terribly long. So I know I'm looking forward to that. And you are, I would have switched back already, except that I've been kind of on this kick. And I said, well, we need to actually finish this book before we snap back to a, a much longer book. And, you know, it's easier to, to finish this one. We still got a ways to go on Klauswitz. Oh yeah, buckle up, we still have a ways to go. But when it comes to this stuff, we don't have that much. So I figured we just finish this book and then head on back to his long-winded contemporary. But for now, let's, uh, yeah, let's stop there. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at Art of Wargaming podcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have.
Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Thank you.